Now, you know that I have developed a reputation, so this will come as no surprise. But if you were expecting a kind of warm and fuzzy and sentimental Mother's Day message, then my title may catch you off guard. My title is, Did Jesus Endorse the NRA? I thought that might get your attention. I'm not here to start a fight. I'm not here to run a a red herring by you. But this really is an important issue. And I think Christians need to think about what Jesus is saying. Uh, When you look at this whole issue, for us, it's sort of intellectual and philosophical. You know, Christians and guns and all of that stuff. For many people around the world today, it's not philosophical at all. What if you happen to live in Nigeria in Chibok? What if we turn the clock back a month or two? And what if you learned, say, you were the principal of the school for those girls? What if you learned that an attack was going to come by a militant Islamic group and they were going to kidnap girls and some of them or all of them would be sold into slavery? What would you do? See, we wouldn't be just talking philosophically. We'd be talking about past the ammunition, would we not? And it's not just that one case in many places around the world. Uh, There may be churches, for example, where there is great hostility. And I have known of situations where the church leaders have heard that there is an attack planned on the church when they come to gather for worship. And the question that they've raised is this. Do we have some of our members bring their guns and stand guard while we worship? So this question about the sword is not necessarily philosophical. But even for us, I think it's an important matter that we need to come to terms with and we need to ask, why does Jesus raise that issue in the first place? What is there that he is saying? And why is there this great reversal in Luke chapter 22 from what he has told his disciples in Luke chapter 9. Why does he tell them to take no money in chapter 9 and tell them to bring money in chapter 22? What's the big change that's taken place? And what does that change have to say to us as we try to live out our Christian lives today? So here's my approach. My approach is to deal with each text in its context. How do we understand the words of Jesus as he speaks them to his disciples early in his ministry in Luke chapter 9 and very late in his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 22? How do we connect the dots between chapter 9 and chapter 22? And how do we connect the dots between then and now? What does this text have to say to us? And I would say to you at the front end, it has a great deal to say to us. So let's go back to those initial instructions that Jesus sets out, if we can, in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. 
And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had been risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. So what's going on in this initial set of instructions? Let me make some observations. First of all, it's very early in the earthly ministry of our Lord. This is the outset of his earthly ministry. The disciples are set out under Jesus' authority and with his power. Notice they are given all authority over all of the demons, and they are sent out to heal and to proclaim the gospel, the good news. I have to observe, too, this is the short version. I have a friend that I love very much, and he has this expression, especially when those of us want to give him the long version. He holds up his hand and he says, give me the short version. And this is the short version in Luke. You want the long version? You go to Matthew. It is really the long version. And here are some of the differences that you see when you compare Matthew and Luke. Matthew says, don't go to the Gentiles, but go to the flock, the lost flock of Israel. That's not in our text for this morning. He says that you are to go and you were to find a man of peace. That actually is in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 are sent out. Or in Matthew, it says that you find a, a man who is worthy. As I understand it, what he's saying is this. When you enter a village, you inquire as to who the man of peace or the man of integrity may be, and you go to his house and you say, may I stay at your house? Here's the message I have. The text seems to be pretty clear that you don't go from house to house. If the first guy says no, you shake the dust off your feet and you move on. He's the test. If the man of peace accepts you, you stay, and you stay at his house until it is time to go. If he doesn't, you go. And then you see these statements that are basically, you might say, work-related in the other text. Freely you have received, freely give. And he says, the laborer is worthy of his hire. It would be a misconception to think that when the disciples went and stayed at the bed and breakfast of that man of peace, that somehow they're loafing or that they're sponging. They are proclaiming the gospel and practicing healing, casting out demons, healing all sicknesses. Trust me, they earned their keep. They worked. That's what he says it also says, do not acquire gold. Now, there are very interesting variations in that translation. Some say, don't take gold. I don't think that's right at all. It's the idea of acquisition. And what it's saying is, not only do not take a money bag. I mean, it's like if you don't have a wallet, where are you going to put it, <laughs> right? If you have money bag and it's empty, then the temptation is to fill it. 
And it's very easy when you are doing miracles for people to come along and say, I am so grateful. Let me make a contribution to the cause. Jesus says, don't fill that money bag. Don't take it. You receive freely, give freely. That's grace, my friend. That's grace. You don't talk about grace and do what Lucy does. Five cents, please. You do accept bed and breakfast. That's the basic necessities. You don't accept gratuities for ministering the gospel. But the huge difference, if you'll notice, in comparing Matthew and Luke is the fact that Matthew has a huge section on opposition and persecution. And Luke doesn't include that at all. Now, I think there's a reason for that. When Jesus gives that instruction early on, the reality is it doesn't even register with the disciples. Remember when the 70 came back, what did they say? Wow, Jesus, you should have seen it. It was great. I was so good. Isn't that what they said, in essence? And Jesus says, I wouldn't get too hopped up if I were you about all that. I would be excited that your names are written in the book of life. That's what you should be excited about. But you see, their first encounter was successful. So what's all this stuff about rejection and whatever? It didn't happen then, but Jesus was talking about the more distant sending out that was going to happen. And that gets picked up, I believe, in uh, chapter 22. So, what's all this teaching supposed to do in chapter 9? I think for people, it does two things. One, it prepares them for the message of salvation. Interestingly, when they were sent out, they basically say the kingdom of God is coming. Get ready. Now, the word repent isn't there in this one, but it is elsewhere. It's the message John the Baptist gave when he went out. It's the message Jesus gave early on when he went out. So basically what it's saying is good things are coming, but it's not the full message. It's preparation for the coming of that message and their anticipation of it. And secondly, it's really a test of their response. Whether or not that town embraces you and embraces what you have to say thus far will all be proven out by whether or not they let you stay and whether they feed you. In fact, you remember in the gospel, or actually Second John, John says to believers, there are going to be people who go out who proclaim error. Do not show hospitality to them. So it works both ways. You don't show hospitality. You don't give bed and breakfast to heretics. And if these people embrace your message, then they bring you in and they, this is a test of whether or not they really are responsive to the message. For the disciples, I think it's simple. It's all about dependence upon the faithful provision of our Lord. Remember what he says in chapter 22? When I sent you out, he takes them now back to Luke chapter 9. When I sent you out, did you didn't lack for anything, did you? And they said, no, not a thing. What he's saying is, you learned in all of the things you didn't take, all the spares, all the extras, two pairs of socks, whatever it was, you didn't have any provision, no food in your bag, no credit card, you know, to, to use if you don't have a room. You found that my provision was absolutely reliable. You know what's interesting? 
What's the next thing, so far as we know, chronologically, when the disciples come back from their first missionary journey? What's the next public thing that happens? Feeding of the 5,000. Isn't it interesting? When he sends them out with nothing and he provides for them, he's saying, I am sufficient. Now it's like Jesus says to him, uh, we're going to ratchet this up just one notch. Now we've got 5,000 men, five loaves and two fishes. What do you think we ought to do about that? It's another evidence of God's provision for his people. And I believe it's also a lesson that the gospel needs to be free. You don't talk about grace with your hand held out. You talk about grace because you show it by the way in which you live. Now, I call this verses 7 through 9, enter Herod. Isn't it kind of weird that you get this instruction and then all of a sudden Herod comes on the scene and you're saying, what is this? I really think it's a key to understanding why Jesus can send them out with this set of instructions. Now, it's not Herod the Great. He's the bad guy in Matthew chapter 2 that kills the babies. Not Herod the Great. It's not the Herod of Acts chapter 12 uh, who kills James. This is the one who kills John the Baptist. I'm not saying he's a nice guy. He's the one that beheaded John the Baptist, albeit reluctantly. Remember, he had this strange push-pull kind of feeling toward John. He was fascinated by his message. He's, he's, he's hoping maybe for, for some bribe or favor from him. And so he's, he wants to hear him. <laughs> John the Baptist has got his bony finger in his face saying, You took your brother's wife. Well, that wasn't happy news at all. And it was only when, you remember, the little girl does the dance that he makes a promise that he is not willing to rescind. And so off comes the head of John the Baptist. What this text tells us is that when the Lord Jesus began his ministry, starting the same way John the Baptist did, when his disciples go about now with all of these miraculous things happening around them, Herod's brain's beginning to whirl and he's saying, who is this guy? And you remember uh, in our text, or in, in some of the text, it essentially says, well, he's afraid. <laughs> Boy, there's a guy for whom the Easter story is not happy, right? He's afraid somebody has risen from the dead. He doesn't know which one of the Old Testament prophets it is, or whether it's John the Baptist. But if he's raised from the dead, that is not good news for him. And so he's curious about this. And there's that still that strange push-pull. He really wants to get to know more about him. Who is this man about whom I hear such things? And then it says, and he kept trying to see him. You see, what Jesus is going to say in Luke chapter 22 is, the reason you're going to be in trouble and be opposed is because I'm going to become a criminal in the eyes of the law. I'm going to become a criminal. And that means you're going to become criminals because you follow me. That's the accusation. But Jesus is not a criminal before the law at this moment in time. He's actually a point of interest. And so Herod's great fascination and interest actually enables the disciples to go out as they do 
and to be warmly welcomed, at least by some. So that's Herod, and I think he represents the mood and the atmosphere with respect to Jesus and his messengers at this moment in time. Now, if you will, fast forward with me a couple of years to the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, just before his death in Luke chapter 22. Here Jesus is observing the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper with his disciples, observing Passover. Uh, It's, we're told, Judas has conspired with the Jewish leaders to hand Jesus over at a convenient time. And Jesus partakes of the bread and the wine as the symbols of the new covenant that he is going to inaugurate by the shedding of his blood. And then he drops the bomb. And he says, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. It's not somebody, somewhere, sometime. It's one of you is going to betray me. Now that led to a little discussion, didn't it? Isn't it strange how how wicked we are in our hearts? You know, the first question is, who who of us would do such a terrible thing? Well, that's not a bad line of conversation. But it ends up in a debate. Who is the greatest? And you see, I think they made that connection. They said, well, obviously the one who would do such a terrible thing couldn't be the greatest. So if you want to get yourself as far away from being the number one suspect, you're going to work toward being the greatest. And I have a feeling that Peter was a great part of that argument. Did he say, as he might have, I'm the oldest. That ought to count for something. Or I was one of the first that was chosen. You know, there could have been all kinds of things. Or he could have said, whenever we've gone somewhere, I was one of the inner three, so I must be at least in the, in the, in the running of, of three for this position. So they're debating about that, and Jesus then gives them a little discussion about leadership. And he basically says, leadership my way is not leadership the Gentile way. Leadership my way is about service. It's about servanthood, the things that were in our bulletin this morning for the, for the worship time. About servanthood, about serving. He who would be the greatest ought to be as the one who is least. But here's the thing that I want you to note that really flew over their heads. He says... Um, he says, uh, his leadership is, is that of the... Wait, let me find it in the text, if I've gotten back that far. He says, um, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And then he says, um, I, I know what I did. I left that text out in my notes. All right, let me just paraphrase it. He says to his disciples, my leadership style is that of servanthood. When you suffer with me, or because you have suffered with me, you will be glorified with me, and you will sit on 12 thrones, right? So here's what Jesus is doing. He's linking suffering with glory. But he's linking now with then. The problem of the disciples was that they thought the glory was now. And they weren't too hot about the suffering part. Now, when they heard Jesus talk about suffering, they thought he was only talking about the suffering 
they had endured. They didn't understand that he was talking about the suffering they would endure. So Jesus is saying this. You need to put off this thing about glory. You're all about who's going to sit on the throne, who's going to be the greatest, and you're thinking about glory now. I'm telling you, those who receive the glory are those who suffer like I do and who receive the honor and the glory when I establish my kingdom. That's then, not now. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Then he turns his attention to Peter. And he says, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan has demanded to have you, oh, the net Bible does it right here, you all. Now, Luke wasn't a southerner. And he isn't saying that in the southern way. There, when, when you translate the word you and just leave it that way, you don't know whether you means you singular or you plural. What he says here is, Satan has demanded to sift all of you. He's going to take all of you guys apart. But Peter, I have prayed specifically for you, singular, that your faith will not fail, so that when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. Boy, that's kind of a, that's kind of a bad message. Think about how Peter heard those words. Jesus drops the bombshell. One of you will betray me. He's going to say to him now, Peter, you're going to deny me. Now, I know, I know. See, our problem is we read back and we say, well, there's a world of difference between betrayal equals Judas and denial equals Peter. Do you think Peter got the subtleties and all that? In fact, when you look at the account in the Gospel of John and Judas leans over to Jesus and says, Are you talking about me? What does Jesus say? In effect, he says, Yes. None of the disciples got it. You know why? Because I think they're so caught up in the fact that it may be somebody like Peter, they just can't get their arms around Judas. They're just assuming it may be him. So you got to understand, when Peter hears the words of warning from Jesus, and he says, Satan has demanded to sift you all, but Peter, it includes you. Peter's saying, no way, Lord, no way. I mean, here's the guy who's probably arguing the loudest for being the greatest. And he's saying, Jesus, you can count on me. I'm with you, whether it's prison or death. I believe he meant every word of it. I believe Peter meant what he said. And I think the evidence of that is, you know, these guys are going to say in our text, hey, Jesus, we got two swords. Who had one of them? Peter. We know from John's gospel, Peter's the guy lopping off the ear. He isn't going to let Jesus get arrested. He's going to die with Jesus if that's what it takes. What Peter can't handle is Jesus saying to Peter, put it away. And that'll be that. Jesus pops the ear back. Can't you see when Jesus stands before Pilate and says, if my kingdom were of this world, my, my disciples would be fighting. And here's old Malchus. He said, well, my ear just got lopped off. Oh, show me. Where is it? There's no evidence of that. So Jesus is basically focusing on Peter. His 
insistence is adamant, and I believe it's sincere. But Jesus now moves from that discussion with Peter, and he moves directly to these words about buying a sword. Isn't that fascinating? There has to be a connection between what Jesus is saying about betrayal, what he's saying to Peter about his denial, and now what he is saying about the things that used to be and the way they will now be. And so he says, in effect, I know how it was. And the thing you should gain from that was, I didn't leave you lacking in any regard, did I? I said, no, Lord, no, you didn't. Jesus says, but now. Something has changed between then and now. What is it? So Jesus is basically saying, I know I said no bag, now get a bag. No money purse, <laughs> get a money purse and fill it. Bring that credit card along. And if you don't have a sword, get one. Wow, those are puzzling, puzzling words. Why is it? What's changed? Because Jesus says a scripture from Isaiah chapter 53 has to be fulfilled, and that is that the Messiah was regarded as a criminal. Jesus is no longer Mr. Popular. Herod's no longer looking for the opportunity. Remember, Jesus will actually be sent to him, and Herod's saying, oh, wow, great, I get to see him at last. Jesus doesn't say anything or do anything. Herod's done with Jesus. And now Jesus is accused and indicted of a crime against the state he is public enemy number one. He is more evil, wicked, reprehensible than Barabbas. And we know about him. He's a murderer, an insurrectionist, couldn't get worse. So all those things have changed. So what do we do with this text? Isn't that really the dilemma? What do we do with this buy a sword thing? Well, that's the fancy word that two of our graduates now know the meaning of, hermeneutics. And it means, so how do you explain these texts that are so troublesome? How do we interpret words of Jesus like this? One of the things I'd say is this. The disciples, if they were inclined toward error, were generally inclined to error in the area of literalism. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Disciples turn to each other and say, you bring the sandwiches today? All they can think of is loaves of bread. Now, the Canaanite woman that was talked about last week, she understood. She talked about crumbs, and she knew she wasn't talking about bread. <laughs> right? They didn't. They were literalists. Beware, my friends. Beware. I'm for the literal interpretation of Scripture, but sometimes you have to get a little metaphorical. Because Jesus does. Look at the parables. The kingdom of God is like. He isn't like it in every single regard. He's like it in some. When you uh, look at Paul's use of the Old Testament, remember it says in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.4, don't muzzle the ox when it treads the corn. Paul doesn't just say, okay, you guys, so be sure you have an ox and you give him corn. What he says is, that applies to preachers. The laborer is worthy of his hire. See, that's a greater principle. And he applies it. And he says, does God care about oxen? 
He's saying, you know, God does care about oxen, but that isn't his ultimate concern. His concern is that the laborer is rewarded for his labors, and that's what you ought to do to those who preach. So you have to watch for some degree of metaphorical interpretation. But here it seems to me is the key. The key is, what does Jesus do with regard to the sword as the text develops? What does he do from here on? And the second thing is, what does Peter tell us? Peter's the center of the discussion. What does Peter learn the interpretation of Jesus' words is, and what does his teaching have to say to us about how we understand the words of Jesus? You remember that uh, when uh, Peter pulls out the sword and lops off the ear of Malchus in John chapter 18, verse 11, Jesus says to Peter, Put the sword away. The cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink of it? Don't use the sword to defend me. I'm supposed to die. So it's certainly, when he says you have a sword, it wasn't to protect Jesus from death. That was the goal. And then when he stands before Pilate, and Pilate says, so you're a king, are you? Jesus said, well, if I were a king in this world, and I were looking for your throne and your job, you bet my disciples would have their swords out. But my kingdom's a different kind of kingdom. And therefore, my disciples don't fight. So that has to play in. That's John 18, 35 through 37. So what is Jesus saying in all of this? I think he's saying simply this. Times have changed. Times have changed. At the beginning of my earthly ministry, people wanted to see me. They wanted me to come and perform healings. They wanted me to cast out demons. And when I sent you out with my power and my authority, they wanted you to do the same. You were welcomed. That's why I could say to you, don't take anything with you, because people would take care of you. Now, so to speak, I'm like bin Laden. I'm not a popular guy. I'm now viewed as a criminal of the state. And therefore, all of my followers, that means you, you're looked at in the same way. So people aren't going to have the welcome wagon out. They're not going to, they're going to, when they see you coming, the welcome mat comes in the door, not out. That means that your strategy, your tactics in proclaiming the gospel have to be adapted. Your trust is always constant. You trust in me. Your tactics with the gospel have to be adapted because of the hostility of the environment in which you live. And so he says, what you need to do is expect persecution, be confident about the future glory that will be yours, and look ahead for that reward that is coming. But don't look for it now. If you come back to 1 Peter, that's exactly the message of Peter, is it not? He starts out in verse 3 of chapter 1 and he says, You've got this blessed hope and it is secure. It is stored up in heaven and nobody's taking it away. You are safe. You are going to make it. But there will be those fiery trials that come along 
And then he says, you know, this whole thing about suffering and then glory, it's something that the Old Testament prophets struggled with. They said, what in the world do we do with this suffering Messiah and this triumphant Messiah? They didn't get it. And then Peter says, like them, you have to understand that glory comes after suffering, not before it. It comes after it. Therefore, he says, you have to gird up the loins of your mind. You have to toughen up. And you have to live in a world in which Christians will suffer for their faith. That's Peter all the way through the book of First Peter. And we're going to come back to him in a minute. So let's ask ourselves this question. If times have changed for the disciples, how have times changed for us? You know, I could look back in my life in the 60s when we came down to go to seminary, early 70s, people were, were the, the, the heroes were Christians, or many of the Christians were heroes. They were highly regarded. You see that today? They used to talk about the moral majority. <laughs> I got to tell you, folks, they're not majority now. We're the minority. And some people would say we're immoral because we take stands against abortion and homosexuality and other things that the Bible clearly calls wrong. Times have changed for us. So let me see if we can think about some things that we ought to be pondering that come out of this text. Number one, this text profoundly proclaims the difference between Islam and true Christianity. Islam would land on this text and they would squeeze it to death because they actually believe the sword is the means of conversion. Is that not right? You convert by force. Jesus is saying, put it away. They're saying, bring it on. That's the way in which it works. Christians ought to be willing to lay down their lives so that others may come to life. But they don't lay down their lives by blowing themselves up and destroying other people in the process. They don't do that. It's hostile to the very message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And he says that when he sends out his disciples. And he says, I'm sending you out as lambs before wolves. Therefore, it seems to me that Jesus is not just teaching his disciples to trust him for bed and breakfast. He is trusting, he is saying we ought to be trusting in him for safety. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I think there is a difference between using a sword to advance the gospel and using the sword to protect innocent people. Please do not leave here thinking that I'm saying that a gun ought never play a role. There may well be roles for, for arms, but that's not the point of this text, as I understand it at least. Here's another one to think about. This text underscores the evil of the prosperity gospel. You know, some of us, I think, look at the prosperity gospel, just kind of wacko stuff out there, and we yawn, roll our eyes, whatever. 
Do you understand the prosperity gospel is diametrically opposed to the teaching of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ says, if you identify with me, you will suffer for that identification. And the glory that will come for you is what comes later when he returns and establishes his kingdom. The prosperity gospel says, oh, no, 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 no. We don't have to do that. We can have the blessings of then now. In fact, they'll actually say, if you're suffering now as a Christian, it's because you lack faith. The problem is yours. Is it any wonder that people that follow that kind of of teaching are the first to fall away when difficulty comes? Because there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with my faith. Rather than to say, that's what Jesus said. The evil of the prosperity gospel sure comes out in this text. So therefore, we should expect persecution as the norm. That's foreign language to us, folks. But talk to people in Nigeria. Talk to Christians in Nigeria who fear for their lives because of radicals that are intent to kill them for their faith. Middle East, like Iran, talk to Christians who are put in jail and let to rot there simply because they name the name of Christ. North Korea, now increasingly India, all around the world, what we're discovering is Jesus' words about suffering are the norm, and we are the exception. That's why the prosperity gospel goes so well here and not some other places. So, times have changed, my friends. What do we do? This actually comes from 1 Peter. And as I said, if you want to understand what Jesus meant, look at, look at Peter. The center is this. Remember at the end of chapter 2, when he's already told slaves to suffer righteously and innocently and silently, he turns to the Lord Jesus and said, look at him. He's the shepherd of our souls. He's the one who won us to himself, and he did so by suffering innocently. He's the model for slaves. He's going to be the model, I hate to say it, but for wives whose marriages aren't ideal in chapter 3. And one of the first things that Peter says to believers is this. Submit yourself to the government under which you live. Don't let the government find accusation against you that sticks. So I want to say to you, my friends, this isn't very prophetic, but I think it's true. I think we'll find ourselves being investigated by people like the IRS looking at our books. I am grateful to God for people like Kay Glenn because I'm going to say, have at it. But be sloppy in your books. Be sloppy in your books, and that'll be a place where government can get you. They'll get us with fire codes. They'll get us with parking regulations. There will be all kinds of means. And what I think Peter is saying is we ought to be scrupulous about obedience to the law of the land wherever we can without disobeying God because the persecution is going to come. We need to adopt our methodology 
in the proclamation of the gospel. We may find that while we were welcomed at one time in countries around the world, many, perhaps most countries now, do not have the welcome mat out for missionaries. You know what that means? It means we may have to get creative about the way in which we get there. It may mean that rather than merely going to seminary, which is not a bad thing to do, you may need to get a medical degree. You may need to get some expertise in, in, in sanitation or, or in some kind of a humanitarian cause where people say, I want them there. People like Joseph and Daniel. In spite of their faith, they are welcome because they have something to bring. We better get creative because people are not going to accept us in the way that they once did. I call that business as mission. So it all shakes down to this. It's really all about our Lord Jesus and our identification with him. That's really where it all shakes out. When the disciples identified with Jesus in their first mission, they were welcomed. When they identified with Jesus in their later missions, they weren't. When you identify with Jesus, things get rough. And the temptation is when things get rough, we tend to back away from our identification with Jesus. Is that not precisely what Peter did? Peter saw the handwriting on the wall and and he said... I never knew him. Deny your identification with him. To the degree that things get tough for us as Christians, we are going to be tempted to withdraw from our identification with him. But that is exactly where we need to be, is identified with him. So that when we suffer, we see it as his suffering. When we look forward to glory, it's because it's his glory. And you know what's interesting about today? The two observances that took place here, the two sacraments, whatever you want to call them, both are to do with identification with Christ. Baptism says, I am publicly identifying myself with Jesus Christ. He is the one I trust in to save me. He is the one I will serve. Communion, every week we come back and we say, It is his death that is mine. It is his life that is mine. So every week we renew this whole matter of our identification with Christ. That's exactly what we should do. Identify with him. One last thing for unbelievers. You have an identity crisis that you may not even be aware of. The greatest identity theft of all time took place in a garden long ago when Satan offered an identity that wasn't really genuine but he stole ours we were created in the image of God but he stole who we were the great news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ offers us the identity exchange we exchange our identity as sinners we exchange our identity as those who were condemned to death And we take on his identity of righteousness and peace and hope. And so I say to you, identify with him. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to prepare in our minds for the troubles that lie ahead. 
Help us to identify with the Lord Jesus joyfully in those things that we suffer for him and that we also look forward with great hope to that which lies ahead because of him. In Jesus' name, amen.